This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hello again and welcome to The Lydia Project. I'm Taryn Hayes. Today, I have a question for those of you who are listening. The question is, Do you carry pain from a previous or an existing relationship? Perhaps a friend or family member or partner has hurt you and you just can't seem to get over it. You try to move forward, but you've suffered injuries of connection and your heart isn't healing. Does this describe you? Does it describe you at any time in your life? Perhaps my asking the question has served to remind you of a difficult relationship that you thought you had forgotten. You are not alone. Many people suffer deeply from pain caused by relationships. It is the reason that Dr. Jonathan Andrews wrote the book, The Reconnected Heart, How Relationships Can Help Us Heal. In fact, the question I just read forms part of the words on the back cover of his book. Dr. Andrews goes on to say, Injuries of connection can be the deepest and most disruptive of all psychological conditions, leading to deep feelings of betrayal, worthlessness, shame and alienation. But there is hope. While it is true that relationships can hurt us, they can also heal us. Dr. Andrews is our guest today. He is the author of our book club book this month, and he is a well-loved clinical psychologist here in Brisbane and also the director of the Heart and Mind Psychological Practice. It is his belief that the most helpful step we can take in life is to live with our hearts in our minds. That is, to live each day in conscious awareness of what we need to function well psychologically. His book uses his 20 years of experience as a practicing clinical psychologist, together with biblical foundations, insights from literature and scientific evidence to lead the reader through the steps of healing. The aim is a reconnected heart, one that will set you up for a life of trust, self-esteem, honor and belonging. Let's welcome our guest. Dr. Jonathan Andrews, welcome. And thank you for giving us your time today to chat about your book and about God's work in your life. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honoured to be part of this conversation. I know you as Jono, Christian, psychologist, husband of the lovely Kylie and dad of four wonderful kids and a significantly helpful member of our church congregation here in Brisbane. But if you were meeting somebody for the first time and thereafter a quick rundown of who you are and what you do, a brief bio if you will... What is your typical answer? I think it's a pretty good answer, the one that you've embarked on there. I think the way that we know ourselves is by our significant relationships. So I think a really good start is I'm I'm a husband to Kylie and I'm a dad to four kids. Uh, We could add further to that, I'm the son, I'm the middle child of the emotionally intuitive, well-balanced middle child. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that people tend to forget um, uh, to Sue and David and, and a brother to you know Matt and Gina so I think that that's a pretty good answer with respect to um, um, who I am as a person I think another way of approaching that question is uh, you know what is my direction and what are my priorities in life so 
Uh, I would say that um, my purpose in life revolves around restoring people's hearts to themselves and where possible to restore their hearts to God if that is something that's important to them. That's pretty yeah. cool. I don't think I would have included that in your bio necessarily, right. so it's good to hear from yourself. So somewhere on your journey you came to put your trust in Jesus. What led to that point and what's happened since? Uh, in my in my spiritual walk I fell in love with God twice, I would say. So, uh, and it's, it's exactly 10 years apart, so one, when I was 14, I went on a uh, camp uh, on the central coast of New South Wales. It was a crusader camp, it was a Christian camp, and one of my friends, uh, his brother was our hut leader. And um, we used to, you know, sail all day and then come back and then we'd have these conversations at night, which were quite profound um, and quite deep. And so there we were, a bunch of 14-year-old boys having these deep and profound conversations. I'm sure all of our conversations in the day weren't characterised by depth, but nonetheless, um, <clears throat> the leader asked me, would you call yourself a Christian? And I can remember that was the first time that that I reflected on, you know, would I label myself in that sort of way? And by the end of that week, I can remember um, being content to label myself that way. And what had preceded that, of course, was many, many Sunday school lessons and Involvements in different church activities, um, but it wasn't. Uh, I it wasn't for another ten years. I went to a place called Labrie and uh, in Switzerland, and I was reflecting on, you know, where I was going and my direction. And it really struck me that um, the uh, the the dreams that I had, or the aspirations that I had, um, um, passions, were weren't something that I had to um, uh, put aside but that was something that represented God's fingerprints over me and I was just awash with gratitude at that point in time and just staggered that there was a sort of father that loved me in such a way that he wanted me to be more me. Um, I had a conversation with with one of the um, staff members there when I must have been rambling about something and at the end of a long ramble he said, oh John, I think that you might think that God is personality denying but the God of the Bible is personality fulfilling and I, I don't know what he said after that because frankly all I heard was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just sort of lost in what he said but he, I think he, he really nailed it and that's what led on to me led me to think uh, you know that God was personality fulfilling and that's what gave me a real sense of gratitude at that point. Just for our listeners' sake, could you tell us a bit more about Labrie and mm. also what drew you there? Right. Uh, Labrie is a, uh, a place or, that was originally, originally set up by the late Francis Schaeffer. Um, there are now Labrie scattered all around the world. Uh, but it's an institution where people come and stay and just reflect. Um, the, the, uh, the people live in community with each other and uh, they have roles in, um, uh, in contributing to the community. Uh, and they also have times of reflections uh, where they, they, they might have a, an agenda for reading and reflecting. Um, and they often are assigned a tutor to help them with these things. So the ideal task is 
to go there with a question in your mind or a consideration that you have about the world and and, and think about what you know and have an interest in what the Christian response might be to that question that you have um, so I went there because my brother had been there um, and I went there uh, to think about you know what my role was in the world um, and I can remember listening to many many tapes and um, saying many prayers and yeah that's what came of it what an incredible experience. Mm, mm, I don't think many people can say that they have been to Libri and had that experience and yeah. come away with such a, it sounds to me, life-altering yeah. advice. And, yeah. yeah, and I think that's quite, uh, that's quite a, a good use of words, like life-altering. I think when people change, like when people say, oh, I really changed to that person, of course they're never referring to a physical thing that like they look the same when the people say they've changed but what I think they've when they say they've changed is their direction or their priorities change mm -hmm. um, and that's often representative of our identities so people might say when their morals change that they have changed or their priorities have changed or their direction has changed then that often leads people to say I'm a different person to what I was. So I think that that's quite appropriate. I felt like I was a different person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, the distinction you've drawn. I've often th thought about that life-changing or I've, I've changed. It's true. Mm. It's often synonymous for for us if we don't break it down like that. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I would have said I was lost, which is a key word. Um, yes. So before that I would have felt lost but after that I felt like I had a, a destination and a direction uh, which is of course what my what my career has ended up being yes yeah. and and for those who will eventually read your book there is significance there as well mm. so well I guess we'll get there because my next question is we'll, we'll put a pin in the book we definitely want to get to the book right. But my next question is, um, you're now the director of the Heart and Mind Psychological Practice here in Brisbane, which yeah. I'm sitting in your office, which is yeah. great. Had you always known you'd like to work in the field of psychology? And what did you say brought you to this place where it's your full-time work? And I'm sensing from what you told me about your experience at Libri that was certainly yeah, part right. and parcel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the passions uh, and interests that I had back then were very much the the you know it's like the engine room or the fuel for what I now do so I had very much an interest in people and, and understanding people I don't think I ever would have used words like connecting um, with people uh, but looking back that's exactly what it was why wouldn't you have used words like connecting I just think I had a smaller vocabulary when I was uh, if I'd found that word at the time, I'm sure I would have used it. Mm. Yeah. What would you have described it back then as? Um, I guess love. Yeah. I love people. Yeah. So I have a love of people. Or I, have, um, I find people interesting. Yeah. 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 That's pretty cool. So, back to the book. Yeah. Um, just for our listeners' sake, our book club book for this month is one that you've written. Um, and the title is The Reconnected Heart, How Relationships Can Help Us Heal. And, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've written here, judging by the copy that I have of your book, just it's a pretty good read. 
and yeah, for for people who are listening to this, the copy's fairly well battered and underlined and okay. yeah, annotated quite a lot and a ton of writing in the back <laughs> with questions that I have for Jono and one of the great advantages of reading a book and then speaking to the author afterwards is that I get to ask you all the questions that I might otherwise not have been able to do. Starting with, what made you feel you needed to write this book? I think observations. Yeah, I think um, observations of myself and my own history, like anyone, I think, were aware of just how much relationships can hurt and relationships can heal. Um, but also observations of people. Um, so many people come because of difficulties in their relationships. Uh, and those, the injuries that get brought about by those uh, difficult relationships uh, can be deep and lasting. Um, it's an ongoing curiosity to me though that um, the very thing that hurt them is the very thing that heals them. Um, it's you know, often me, because people come to see me, but it's often me just organising um, healthy relationships for them or around them or you know, doing that together with them. Um, so it's not just me, it's never just me, but it's, um, yeah, what led me to write the book was the observation that uh, relationships can really hurt people, but that relationships can bring about an extraordinary amount of healing too. Mm -hmm. And um, just again for our listeners, your book's divided into three parts. Part one, the heart and the importance of connection. Mm. Part two, how relationships hurt. Mm. And then part three, how relationships heal. Um, in part one, you spend good time explaining the importance of connection. And I, I was really surprised to see how positive connections at a young age is one of the biggest predictors for overall health and well-being and in adulthood. That was, I found that quite surprising. I think the temptation, though, is to worry that if you have a, a youth spent with negative connections, you're set up to fail. But you've illustrated that that's not necessarily true. Could you unpack what you mean by connection? What is it? Why is it important? And what hope is there for those who've had a negative childhood experience? Uh, they're, oh, they're great questions. I, I value the opportunity to respond to those. Because on several occasions when I've been speaking to um, groups of people, sometimes you get this resistance, not about what you're suggesting, but about... Um, how, e how easy it might be to achieve uh, results from the, what I've suggested. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that some people experience such extraordinary um, difficulties in relationships from such an early age that the injuries that they carry can prove to be quite stubborn. Uh, and it takes a while and it takes a long while so that needs to be emphasised. Um, it's Typically, uh, disconnection is the intrusion of some sort of bad way of relating. So that includes uh, physical or sexual abuse. Uh, but it's not just the intrusion of something bad, it's also the omission of something good that upsets people. So it's the absence of love or safety or warmth. So connection is uh, a rapport that we have between people, an experience of someone that is uh, 
relating to us in a pattern that's kind of predictable and uh, warm and respectful. Um, if you have that, it is a great setup for life. Um, if you have disconnection, so you have the presence of bad relationships, um, like violence, and and or if you have omission, so the, the removal of something good and you experience neglect, then that can be really profoundly upsetting for people. But one of the one of the points I think is really really important that whilst we've emphasised that if you get both disconnection and the omission of love early on, that can be really unsettling for a human being. It's definitely not the end of the story by any stretch. Um, one of the uh, one of the studies that I love to talk about is um, is called the Harvard Grant Study, um, which is uh, probably the longest running psychological study in the world, and uh, one of the greatest predictors for this large group of two hundred plus men was one of the greatest predictors for success uh, when they're older is the warmth that they had with their caregiver. Now, this is great for a lot of people who did experience that and, and it, no doubt it, it continues to be a source of strength and joy for a lot of people, but um, for a lot of us we, uh, we didn't experience that and life was quite difficult. But in the book, uh, The Triumph of Experience, which is all about the study, mm -hmm. uh, the Harvard Grant Study, he, they mention a guy named Garrick, who had, in his middle years, was more or less described as being boring. <laughs> he was, his life didn't amount to much. His profession, his career wasn't amount, amounting to much. His relationships weren't that close. He's, he just wasn't a vibrant person. Um, but... And unfortunately, that is linked to his early upbringing with his caregiver, which was described as quite cold. Mm. Um, but Garrick, in his middle years, decided that he would um, he would uh, uh, take some more risks. I think he joined a um, drama group. He made some changes in his career. He socialised more. And when he was in his latter years, um, he... Um, he had the highest well-being score possible. So here's a guy who had an upbringing that was cold, and so this is not a good setup. He gets to his middle years, and he's a boring person, but he ends his later life by reporting um, really high levels of well-being, and that's because he initiated connectedness in his middle years. There was a, there's a joke that he plays, and they said, oh, what, what medication are you on? And... And he leaned forward and he laughed and he said, Viagra, twice a week as needed. <laughs> so, you know, you don't know what comes first in terms of Viagra-like activities or connectedness or whatever. <laughs> I don't want to go into that. But uh, the, the, the reality is he's a very healthy older man mm. uh, on a very limited amount of prescription medication. Yeah. yeah. So there's hope. I guess that's a really important thing. I want to be realistic about the hope. I don't, I don't want to oversell it like and say... Ah, oh, connect and you'll be fine. There are a lot of people who've just been through horrific things, but uh, nonetheless, uh, there is hope. Yeah. What I'm hearing as well that to get to what that hope projects requires risk. Mm. 
Yeah. And that step seems to be quite a big one. Yeah, that's right. It's there's a there's a tension there, isn't there? The thing that you need to do isn't at all the thing that is going to be intuitive or will come naturally. Mm. Um, and but that's so much the case for what is good therapy. Like good therapy involves probably doing the thing that you don't want to do. Um, so for everyone who comes here, good therapy involves um, talking. But most people don't want to talk when they've been through something bad. So everyone who comes is doing uh, a good therapy because they're not doing what they want to do. There are many other people who do what they want to do, but that's bad therapy. So, you know, you watch TV all day or mm. you drink too much alcohol and you do what you want to do and it comes naturally, but that's not good therapy, that's poor therapy. Mm. I think good therapy involves feeling worse in order to feel better rather than the other way around. Yeah, and that's just often quite insurmountable for, yeah. for people. Yeah, and that's why everyone who comes to me, uh, I have a lot of respect for because they're all characterised by bravery. Like, they're all the people who go, you know what, I think I have to talk. And it's hard, it's not easy. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you've established relationships can hurt and people can hurt people both by the things that they do and the things that they don't do. You're speaking about the omission and commission, and you do unpack this really well in part two of your book. You also speak of the four connection injuries. Could you tell us what those are and how do we recognise them? Yeah, well, the first ones would be, like, worthlessness and betrayal. Um, so these are, see, these are things that I think come more directly out of uh, difficulty with disconnection or lack of connectedness. Um, and then there are ones that seem to be more indirectly related to uh, the disconnection or the omission of love um, and that would revolve around some sort of like uh, alienation or not belonging and shame so those ones are more indirectly related because I think that we feel a sh there's also a moral injury that comes with shame like we often think that we're bad so worthlessness seems understandable because that's a comment about value. And I think betrayal is about broken trust. Um, we, we learn that people don't have our interests uh, on their hearts so, and then they don't take care of us when we're being close to them. Um, but then there are two other injuries and one is feeling of shame. So we feel like you know, we might report feeling disconnected or worthless but we also feel like we're, there's something wrong with us like we're dirty um, we might say that we feel defective uh, or we've got this stain on us uh, but also uh, people who have gone through a lot of difficulty can often feel alienated from other people or they don't belong and I think that uh, that often comes about you know, when people they might lose a role or they might lose their direction as well a little bit um, so in the book I wrote about a guy in the first couple of uh, first chapter I wrote about a guy who retired and uh, then he had no role mm -hmm. in, in life so he felt like he didn't belong anywhere um, so yeah there's probably four main connection injuries they're not the only difficulties that come out of connection problems but they're probably things that are called connection injuries mm -hmm. so you also get other injuries that are very very common that sort of co-occur with those things like identity disturbance, like so someone, it's very, very common when someone reports any of those four 
that they would also say something like, um, I'm a failure, or I'm an idiot. So wherever you hear those I am statements, it's kind of like a label, or um, I'm stupid. So it usually falls along the lines of I am or blank or I am a blank, and people fill those in. And that's for incredibly understandable reasons. I think all of us, me included, ask ourselves a question like, um, who am I to be treated the way I've been treated? For probably most of us, we, uh, we fill in, we answer that question uh, in positive ways. Uh, so if there's interest shown in us, to us and we feel safe, uh, we get read books and people want to play with us and um, there's some sort of uh, rhythm in life, like we, we sleep in a bed and we have a full tummy and that sort of stuff, then we end up answering, it's in a kind of like a wordless form, we end up answering that question like, who am I to be treated the way I am? I must be worthwhile, I must be alright, I must be important somehow. But for, uh, unfortunately for many of us, we ask the same question, but we answer it very differently because, you know, mum or dad or caregiver or whoever isn't that interested. Um, that mum or dad or caregiver could have been drinking a lot of alcohol or being preoccupied with their own mental health issues or uh, mum or dad or caregiver could have been violent in their own way. And then we ask the question, who am I to be treated the way I've been treated? And then we come up with a horrible answer. We say, oh, I must be unimportant. I must be, um, you know, I must be worthless. Uh, and and it's a, these things stick with us. And, of course, th- those things are often linked to hopelessness and hopelessness is often linked to suicide. Mm-hmm. Now, all of those sectors that I just described are sort of like, I'd call them heart-related sort of sectors uh, the book concerns itself just with the basement or the foundation of the heart, which is uh, connectedness and its injuries. Well, connectedness and its blessings as well, because when you, when you are connected, you, you feel like you're worthwhile. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend who's got a very confident husband, and as I'm hearing you speak and share this, I'm also thinking about somebody who might have had a really good positive upbringing Mm. who then encounters a a connection that is negative Mm. and what would be a a healthy you know inverted commas healthy response to this and I don't think I've landed anywhere on this but it was anecdotally kind of almost funny because she says if, if she runs into a relationship where somebody is unhappy with her she thinks oh there must be something wrong with me Whereas for her husband, he thinks there must be something wrong with them if they don't like him. And I can see if, you know, you go to either extreme on those, there there are other issues that that might raise. I can imagine a very narcissistic person might think everybody else is wrong. But I wonder if there's like a balance somewhere in that, you know, obviously there's realism because there are things wrong with us sometimes and there might be legitimate reasons why somebody is unhappy with us. But to be able to look at that particular situation realistically Mm. I would imagine would be the band of of healthy but how many of us actually dwell there most of the time yeah that's right Uh, and the history of our significant relationships will probably determine whether or not we internalise 
the difficulty that we encounter or externalize it. Um, so there, most people come to see me uh, internalize way too much and their growth area is to externalize. So they have a difficulty in a relationship and they're prone to concluding exactly what you're suggesting, which is, oh, it must be me, oh, I must be the problem, I'm defective, oh, it's my fault, I'm to blame. Which is, of course is very much, that way of thinking is very much linked to uh, significant ongoing distress. Um, and their growth area is to externalise. Um, uh, that is to learn to say, you know, not everything is my fault. It's, it's a little bit tricky to grow in that direction, but nonetheless, I talk to people about it. But there are some people who externalise way too much, uh, and this is a serious pathology, really. Uh, um, and you have to find a gentle way to say, no, it's not other people's fault, it's your fault. And that's their growth area. Do you find you have many of those people in your room? Uh, they don't stay for long. <laughs> <laughs> as, much, as loving as I'd like to be, it can be really tough news. And I do try to be loving at all times. But often the people who are like that are sent to me uh, by their spouse. Um, and they don't particularly want to be here. But it's really unfortunate. One of the things uh, I try to explain to them before they go is... If you externalise stuff, then there's nothing you can do about it. You render yourself powerless. So, um, for some people when they think, oh, it's my fault, they do have some degree of power because then they think, well, if I can change myself, then I'll heal this situation and things will be fine. The problem for those people is, even when they do the change themselves, often the situation is still not fine. So the belief that, you know, if they change themselves, all will be well, it's a bit misplaced. Mm -hmm. uh, but for a, a lot of people who come, and there aren't that many, so I'll take that back about a lot of people, for the people who come who are sent to me, who have a problem with externalising too much, their mood doesn't tend to suffer that much, but they live a powerless life. Because if it's not their fault, then they're unable to change themselves. And if they're unable to change themselves, then their relationships will probably remain the way that they are. So mm -hmm. the prognosis is not good. So I take time to talk to them about that. But I also you know, want to be clear with them because I want them to be helpful. I want to be helpful to them and say, listen, if you really want to have the power to change your relationships, this is a direction that you've got to go. You've got to say, maybe there are some things that need to change about myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, moving on to your book again, in chapter four you talk about attachment styles, um, that's on page 97. I found that really insightful in understanding how I operate right. um, versus how maybe another person operates. Could you share more about what those are? Yeah, so these attachment styles are more or less trust, patterns of trust, and these patterns get established early. So for probably 50 to 60% of people um, the, most of the people have a secure attachment so uh, they would have an experience where uh, they, they feel like they can approach people and they don't feel terribly anxious about doing so so uh, all of the attachment styles fall along those two continuums of behaviour and anxiety 
So someone who's secure, their behaviour is to approach and their anxiety is low. But there are three other significant patterns that come up that fall elsewhere along those two sort of spectrums. So someone who has um, a preoccupied attachment, they, they will still approach people, but they get anxious about it. Um, for some people who are sort of uh, fearful um, and avoidant, uh, they, will, they will be anxious and they will also uh, avoid people, so they don't approach. Uh, and some people, they don't feel very anxious at all. Uh, they just avoid. So they're low on anxiety and they're low, uh, low on approach behaviours. And they're sort of dismissive, avoid sort of personalities. Yeah. These things aren't permanent, but they certainly are enduring. Um, like, they can change, but they can only change really by being around the right sort of people and being deeply reflective. Often they change in the context of therapy. Mm, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. As, as I was looking at, you got a diagram in your book, which I think is quite helpful, showing yeah. the two continuums that's on an X and a Y axis. Yeah. Axis, And I was looking at that and thinking through for myself how where I would fit, and I realized it kind of changes depending on the relationship. So yeah, I would right. probably be on the secure and attachment, you know, seeking um, attachment. But sometimes I'm probably secure and avoidant as well, right, right. depending on the relationship, depending what I'm expecting or my experience previously with that relationship. Yeah, right. And it, it, it led me down quite a long path of thinking, why it is I do that? And, and yeah, it was interesting. Maybe I need to come and have a session with you no, no, no. <laughs> and pack it off. It is, it is fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating to think that if you walk into a room where you sit and how close you sit to someone, is probably determined by that sort of early relational pattern. Okay. So there are some people who won't feel anxious and they have approach behaviours and they just say, hi, is, is anyone sitting here? And then they start up a conversation. It's all very natural, but not everyone's that way. Mm. Some people are getting anxious and they still approach. And some people aren't anxious at all, uh, but they definitely don't want to sit near people, so they don't. <laughs> sit right up the back of a lecture and yeah. away from everyone else. Yeah. And it's a very curious thing to think that, you know, that sort of automated pattern probably comes out of those early relationships. But we're not tied to that. That's the other important mm. thing in a similar vein to what we're talking about. Like, when, you know, some things are hard to shake and those things, those things that started early on for us, very early on, uh, are harder to shake. That doesn't mean it's impossible, and that's what that illustration about Garrick was about. Mm. Um, it's certainly not impossible. Yeah, we just need great. to be more patient with ourselves if there's a longer history there. Yeah. Chapter five, you talk about the four languages of the heart. Hmm. Again, I, I, I suppose it kind of sounds like I'm disseminating your whole book, and by the end of this interview, nobody needs to read it, but that's not the case. <laughs> Because there's so much good in there, but I'd love to give our listeners just kind of the, the bones uh, um, and the structure and some of the key things that I thought were really, really well worth understanding and then reading up more in your book. So yeah. chapter five, you talk about the four languages of the heart. What are these? And can you explain the acronym you use, SMART, S-M-A-R-T, to help yeah. your patients identify those languages? Yeah, so it's interesting to me the, the, the differences 
different cultures have different perspectives of things like emotions. I would probably say that uh, emotions are the common language of everyone's heart, and I'd soon and I'd say that that was uh, universal. Uh, I don't. I think it changes developmentally. Like I think that uh, there's um, a physical or behavioural language that's common to all kids. So how do we know if Johnny's upset? Well, he punched his sister, right? So his his language of being upset seems to be more behavioural, and you see that more often in kids. I think the most common language for adults is emotion. Like how do we know that something is upsetting us at a heart level? is usually because of a significant change in a feeling state that we have. So there are four languages, and I would say mood is probably the most common language. Uh, the idea of SMART is to sort of open up those languages. S stands for situation, so this is what people do when they do their reflections for me. Uh, for me uh, is one is they, they, they reflect on something that upset them a little bit, and then they document you know, what was the situation that upset me? And then they ask themselves what was the mood that that created? And then ask themselves what was the action that uh, that came up? How did I cope with it? What was my physical reaction at the time? And also what were the thoughts that went through my mind? Now, all of these, of course, I suspect, although, that you know, there are some times when we have feelings that directly come from physical issues. So someone might have a thyroid issue and your mood state changes because of that physical issue. But having said that, I think Proverbs 4.23 is, is incredibly helpful because it says, above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do comes from it. So your mood comes from it, your actions come from it, your physical reactions come from it, your thoughts come from it. So when something happens to us at a heart level, all of these things just flow out. And there's this ancient wisdom that, from a psychological perspective, I just think is absolutely spot on. So this wisdom that must be 3,000 years old, which I just think this is just incredibly insightful and is true of myself and everyone who comes to see me. Because you never... So if someone gets upset and they withdraw, you never have to tell them to withdraw when they're upset. You don't go up to them and say, hey, have you thought about withdrawing? One is because that would be a really silly suggestion to make. But two is because they've already done it. So the wisdom is spot on because it just flows out. That's what the proverb says. It just flows out. They've already done that. And the same with their negative thoughts when they're upset. The same with the fright that they feel in their chest, in their breathing, in their heart rate. Uh, the same with all of those factors. All of these things just flow out. So the languages of the heart are mood, action, physical reaction, and thoughts. I think the most predominant language, the, the fancy phrase, I think, is uh, lingua franca. It's the, the language that we all share is one of emotion, and that's how we know that something's happened to us at a heart level. Mm, yeah. I really like the SMART acronym because it helps in an organised kind of fashion, which really speaks to me. <laughs> Um, work through those things and to be able to look at all the aspects to really analyse what you've experienced and why you've experienced it to understand it better mm. I think is a very helpful tool very helpful um, you also say that a significant component of the pathway to healing is making good connections with oneself yeah. and with others and with God yeah. in terms of connecting with others you speak of needing to match two essential descriptors namely the levels of safety and of 
proximity. Again, what are these and yeah. when are they most dangerous or most optimal? About those three connection points, these are three connection points I think that um, form a framework around us that don't automatically entail that someone will be healed but it's kind of like a framework in which the likelihood of finding some recovery is increased. And about those three, so connection with yourself, connection with others, connection with God, I think in our communities, in our Christian communities in particular, we're really good at the last one, and that often gets talked about, and so it should get spoken of. Uh, This is a core business for the church. Uh, It's a defining characteristic of that community to talk about how we relate to the divine and how the divine relates to us. So we're really good at that last one. We're moderately good at the middle one, which is connecting with each other. We talk about it, but to be honest, there are times when we fail miserably, me included. Um, But the first one, connection with ourselves, we are actually bad at, I think. So we're good at the last one. We're moderately good at the middle one, but we're actually quite poor at the first one, which is connecting with ourselves. And this is really um, unfortunate. one is because we're told to do it. This is the obvious thing. In the Proverbs it says, above all else, guard your heart. So the point there is that this is a real priority. The King James Version starts the same Proverbs with, keep your heart with all due diligence. So the NIV speaks of it being a priority, and the King James talks of it as being something that we must do in a really thorough way. So, and all of that requires connection with yourself, and so we're told to do it. So, on that level, this is really unfortunate. We're poor at that. Um, But the unfortunate thing about it is also is the extent to which we're connected with ourselves is the extent, is the ceiling level that we put in in our connection with other people and with God. So if you say, if you run into me at church and you say, how are you going? And I say, yeah, good, how are you? And that's the extent of the connection that I've had with myself, then that's the ceiling level that I'm putting with you and it's pretty low. So you're going to walk away from that interaction just feeling like you don't really know me that well. But if I spend some time thinking about, well, how have I been going? How have I been feeling, particularly feeling? Um... But how have I been thinking? How have, I, how have my significant relationships been? That sort of thing. And then I run into your church. You say, John, how are you going? Then I can give you a much more an elaborate answer because of that, and you're going to feel like you know me a lot better. But here's the trick: mm-hmm. that sort of um, that sort of disclosure, I think, requires something of you, or of me, as you and me as friends, right? Or my friendships with anyone, right? So if I'm going to have that sort of proximity to someone, which is sharing with them about how I'm going, what I'm like, the only condition under which that is going to be sustainable is a level of uh, warmth and respect and care. Uh, Otherwise, it just won't be sustainable. Um, so I've got to match my level of proximity to my level of safety with people. And this is crucial. I, I, you know, I used to um, 
when I was younger, I used to love weddings, and I really did. They're such enjoyable things, and um, and, and just at event, events of real beauty to participate in um, and attend to. But I think I'm getting turning into a well, slightly cynical middle-aged man because, <laughs> like, I go to weddings, and, and if I don't know them really, the person particularly well, then I begin to sort of get questions in my mind because you and I know, every married person knows that the proximity level is coming up and up and up and up. These people are going to be living with each other. These people are going to be sharing a physical relationship with each other. So the proximity is going up and up and up and up. And I ask myself, is the safety level there to match that level of proximity? Because if the safety level isn't really high, then it just won't last. You can almost put you know, some sort of countdown on your stopwatch and you just watch it count down and it'll bust up. Mm. You can hear my cynicism, my mm. middle-aged cynicism come out. I'm sorry about that. Um, but it doesn't... Of course, fortunately, a lot of people aren't like that. Mm. Of course, they're gentle and kind and respectful. Um, I put in an acronym uh, towards the end of the book called FRIENDS, which is about you can't, you can't fight people. You can't um, fake that everything's all right. You can't flee you know, from people we're talking about, they have to face them. But when you do, you have to be respectful. You have to see each other as an individual with their own story. You have to be able to empathise. You can't be neglectful. You can't determine you know, a partner or someone close to your friend or a partner, so you can't steal their choices. Um, and you have to be safe for them. You have the, mm. People have to have a felt sense of safety. Now, if you have those ingredients, then you're definitely going to be safe. And you can have a proximity that's high and it will be sustainable but if you don't have those sort of capacities but you've got the proximity it just won't work I don't think mm. so one of the surprising things about writing the book is this encroaching sense of maybe the legitimacy of social engineering like uh, and I wasn't expecting it so I was writing away and, and of course it took me years to get through it but it just had this creeping sense of you know I think that might be okay I think it might be okay to determine how much proximity you actually want to have with particular people in your life. Uh, and this is so important because so many people come to me and they think that because the person that they've had difficulty with is family, they don't have a choice in it. But this is a horrible scenario because some family members are nasty uh, and represent, don't represent safety in any way. But because the way a culture is sometimes we think, yeah, but they're family, so you've got to have that proximity with them. And now people are left with this sense of, well, I don't feel safe, but I have no choice in it. Now that's a disaster. Mm. Um, so what needs to be says, said is um, no, uh, with anyone, you have a choice. Decide on how much proximity you want to have and whether that matches the level of safety that the other person is offering. Mm. I feel like we could spend a lot of time yeah. unpacking that as well because even as you're speaking I completely agree and then all the what if scenarios yeah, yeah. come into my mind yeah that's right um, because the reality is that that person who is maybe unsafe can come to a point where they are safer that's right and yeah. there's always movement yeah. and change yeah. in the choices that they make and that's right and, and you would have read that so there are some relationships that are, seem to be 
not quite as fluid and they're more contractual in nature so when you do marriage work with people of course they've made a commitment to it so it's not easy to just sort of create some distance if that's what you prefer to do so what you've got to do is you've got to address that you've got to face that with someone and see how much change you can bring about Mm -hmm. and a lot of the time you can sometimes you can't but a lot of the time you can yeah yeah Throughout the book, um, you speak of God quite a bit, yeah. and um, obviously I think that's great. You speak to both the reader who may be a Christian already, yeah. and you're speaking to those who might have no faith at all, yeah. and there's no pressure for the reader to kind of acquiesce to any theological view, but you do present the gospel very clearly, and you explain the importance of connecting to God, particularly in chapter 6, and I think you do that extremely well, because there's no alienation of anybody who might not agree as you well, certainly that was my experience anyway and of course I have the bias of being a Christian person so I'm seeing it through that filter but I felt, felt that there was no um, you know if somebody's going into a fairly open minded there's not going to be an alienation of them you're very warm and, and, and I'm sure our listeners will pick it up just from your, your speaking it's the same tone Good. that there is a, a, a warmth and open handed and heartedness to people and where they're at and then you come to fully explain the gospel in the course of the book and I think that's fantastic and you explain what it means to be um, connecting to God what it looks like and why it's important yeah so what is that if you can put that in a nutshell what would you say connecting to God looks like and why is it important um a spiritual connection, I don't think is terribly different than a, a connection that we have with each other. Like, uh, So it's a time-dependent process. There isn't any connection without time at all, ever. I think I made some um, bad joke about in the book about the connection between Bruce Springsteen and I. It's got that bad. <laughs> that I'm beginning to wonder if he knows I actually exist. And because we haven't spent any time together at all, ever. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, much to my disappointment, I guess. But, um, so it's a time-dependent process where people face each other and people disclose things to each other, people share things. Uh, The interesting thing about it is, I think, that it's not just the sharing, it's about depth as well as sharing. So it's a time-dependent process where, uh, where there's some sort of disclosure but the deeper the better. So lonely people, um, lonely people aren't uh, in Australia. So one in four Australians report being lonely. But they're not unusual people, and they're not ugly people, and they're not dangerous people, and they often have exactly the same number of friends. Um, and the, so the dilemma comes up when you talk about loneliness: that there are lonely people at a party, and there are lonely people in a crowd. Um, but loneliness is remedied by the quality of a relationship not and the depth of a relationship, not the amount of a relationship. So what does connection look like spiritually? It looks like time spent disclosing deeper things and also hearing deeper things from God. How would you say we hear from God? Well, I, my mind always goes to a friend of mine who did a talk uh, about his spiritual habit and he said, I kneel down at the side of my bed, he talks first, I talk second. 
which I thought was had such great clarity to it. And what he was talking about is he opens the Bible and he hears from God's word. Um, that's the core part of disclosure, I think, from um, from God. But there's also you know wisdom that friends and family can share and insights and observations of beauty more broadly, I think. Mm. Um, uh, but And, of course, prayer is the way that we communicate back. Yeah. So you want to hear those deeper things from him yeah. about how he feels about us. And we want to share those deeper things about us to him, and that's spiritual connectedness. In reading that and thinking about the three connections, mm-hmm. my experience is that often... The, that happens the best simultaneously, if that makes sense. So I'm thinking about I've got a a, a wonderful growing relationship with a friend um, and we read the Bible together one-to-one and through that there's been great connectedness to God and His Word and understanding what He's saying but we're doing it together and so there's that connectedness with one another and because that, as as they always do in these one-to-ones, there's spin-offs into experiences and so you get to know each other more there's a depth to that relationship yeah, yeah. and it also brings about opportunity to connect more with oneself yeah. because you're thinking about and you're expressing some of the you know more deeper things that have happened yeah, um, yeah. to you in your past and gives you kind of reason to think about it and and examine it instead of you know hiding it away somewhere and it's just been such a beautiful context in which to really develop those three relationships yeah, really good. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. They so often operate in some sort of synchrony, don't they? And we find ourselves understanding ourselves more uh, when we're sharing and when we're being asked questions mm. of each other. And then, you know, someone might ask to us, you know, how we're going, and then we explain how we're going or something. And someone might offer in, you know, uh, or ask a question, and then sort of, you know starts us being interested in something else or a different way of viewing ourselves and how we're experiencing so that sort of connectedness that we have with others brings about an increased connection with ourselves mm. yeah uh so uh yeah they often co-occur and they yeah. and the more they're co-occurring the better i guess other levels of connectedness would be yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely here's another big question yeah go ahead Uh, On page 195, you talk about the difference between secular and Christian forgiveness. What is that? And why are the differences important? Is that the page where there's a Bonhoeffer quote? Is that it? I put that in partly as a go at myself in a way, because I think the quote starts with him saying that the ordinary Christian may well know more about what your heart is like than the psychologist that you visit so I put that in partly to go have a go about myself (laughs) Um, and uh, he opens up this sort of insight which is about sinfulness and what we're what we're truly like that psychology isn't really known for picking up on and so it's quite a astute observation Uh, we at that point in the book I think uh, well there's this um, question about Forgiveness and what does it look like to forgive people? And um, this is a really interesting journey for a lot of people who see me because uh, they can't forgive and they won't forgive and they get stuck. Um, and uh, 
it, it gets really difficult. One of the, one, my observation is one of the things that makes it most difficult is because the way they've been hurt by someone has changed the way that they see themselves. So they see themselves as worthless and ashamed and dirty and um, different and that sort of thing. So the idea that somehow they should let the person who hurt them, that they should let them off the hook is just foreign. Like, why would I do that? They've, uh, they've damaged me so much. And I have great sympathy for that. Of course it's hard. I don't push that very... You know, I don't push that hard. Even though I know that forgiveness is good for us all, I don't push that very hard. But the journey is made so much easier, I think, for a lot of people when they realise that they've outsourced, they've outsourced the task of rebuilding their heart to the wrong person. Um, so who we worship, I think... Uh, is defined by um, who we ask to heal our hearts. So if I ask myself to heal my heart and I want to achieve, so I set out and do, you know, this, uh, get this degree or, you know, climb that mountain or something, and then I feel good about myself, my identity, my value, because of my achievements, then I've, and it's kind of like this mechanism of worshipping yourself. Um, but that's not the only way that people tend to do it. People can outsource it in two other ways, I think. So they either do it in-house, they either do the worship in-house and they look to themselves to achieve, or they outsource it in one of two ways. So the other way they outsource it is to someone else. They, they say, well, if this person likes me, respects me, um, cares for me, then I'm worthwhile and I have a good identity. Um, the problem with what we're talking about at that point in the book is when we, uh, when we have to forgive someone, a lot of the time we don't recognise that we've asked that person, that horrible, nasty person, to give us their identity. And I think that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Why should they have that much power to make us feel bad about ourselves? Uh, the really fortunate thing, I think, is... Forgiveness is made so much easier when we go, you know what, I don't want to outsource to that person. This person's a stupid, nasty person. And I don't want them to have that much power over me anymore. I've outsourced to the wrong person. Now, Christian people have a great resource where they say, pick up on the other outsourcing option, where they say, I think I'm just going to give God that role. I don't. And they go to God, and then we have this really interesting moment where people want to forgive and want to bring themselves to forgiveness but at the same time that they're saying God I want you to have this role they're also saying I've been really hurt and I'm going to ask you to forgive me God because I think this this was your job and maybe it wasn't that nasty stupid person responsibility to do that job in the first place I don't worship them they don't make me feel bad about who I am they're not going to make me feel good about who I am either I don't need them they've had way too much power I'm going to give that power to you, God. You decide who I am and what I'm like. And if you say that I'm worthy, and if you say my identity is I'm your child, then that will be enough. And then at that point, forgiveness seems so much easier. Like, because, uh, you know, it, it, when your heart is healed, it's easier to let something go. And I think that's what a lot of forgiveness is about. But people don't forgive 
when their heart is broken, generally speaking, they just won't. Mm. But if your heart is healing, then you can forgive. Yeah. I think that's an incredibly helpful way to um, think it through, yeah. to recognize the beauty of identity that God gives us, and to recognize that that's where it rightly belongs. But there is going to still be the problem of the forgiveness that you would want to extend to the other person mm. for the pain that they've caused. And of course, that brings into the question of transactional forgiveness mm. and forgiveness of the heart. So you mm. might have the desire and be ready and willing to forgive somebody who's mm. caused you great pain, mm. but they haven't asked for forgiveness. And yeah, so you yeah. don't have that picture isn't perfectly complete. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's knowing that God has, has already forgiven us mm. of our terrible transgressions against Him and having our identity in him I think that allows us to um, hold that forgiveness out and be ready to forgive that person who's hurt us so badly mm. and and allows us to carry on and not be shaped by the yeah. identity that they've placed upon us yeah, the yeah. shame the that's right all yeah. of that and that's certainly in my experience that's not a oh I've got it all together fixed awesome move on from this yeah, point right. I can it's a constant revisiting and yeah, reminding right. yeah. of who we are in Christ and who that person is and yeah to be in a position where you can extend forgiveness but if it never happens that they never come yeah. to you for forgiveness yeah, yeah. that you can still find your worth worth in the Lord and so certainly I mean that's my experience maybe maybe there is there is something further down the road that makes that more of a permanent experience well, yeah, what yeah. do you think yeah yeah absolutely it's part of a journey uh, and it's a part of an ongoing sort of journey isn't it what what we're not saying uh when we're talking about forgiveness we're talking about a let, uh, letting go but we're not saying we're not talking about reconciliation mm. we're not talking about oh now you're forgiven now do you want to be reconciled with the person that's upset you mm. in such horrible ways no no, mm. uh, these people are still deserving of judgment mm. and they should be judged and they should be held to account. So we're not saying, well, when we're talking about forgiveness, we're talking about letting go, but we're not talking about now you can be reconciled, that's mm. a whole different issue. Nor are we saying that, oh, God is all you need and you'll be fine. And we're not distilling this thing down into, oh, yeah, better if you thought about the bad things you've done. It's nothing to do mm. with that. What we're saying is in the forgiveness or the letting go process is that you'll find these things that you've been through easier to let go when you seek out a different source of identity and value. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to be involved with these people that hurt you? No, you shouldn't be. And if we're, to we're bringing up that idea of proximity and safety, then chances are these people haven't changed and you shouldn't spend any time mm. with them at all. Yeah. Um, there are a number of people who say to me, oh, should I, should I talk to my dad about this, about what happened when I was young? And so often I say, hold on, Tick, hold on, Tick. You told me your dad was obnoxious and barely listens to you. Is he still like that? And the person might go, yeah. I go, well, what's the point in talking to him? There's no point in talking to them. So you've got to match that proximity again. Mm. So we're not talking about reconciliation. We're just talking about this idea that we, we want your heart to be restored and for you to no longer be defined by the horrible relationships that you've had. Mm. Mm. Actually, I find that quite interesting, what you're saying, because 
I think I'd have to mull on that for quite a while. <laughs> um, because I have seen opportunities where somebody has spoken to the obnoxious father or mm. the you know, particularly difficult whoever it is. And I do think usually that doesn't end well, but yeah. there are many cases when it has. That's right. That's right. And I would hate to close the door on no. on the small chance that it would No. No, that's right. And it brings us back to that discussion that we had before about, you know, there's some sort of relationships that seem more contractual or embedded. Like you might be in a partnership at work, you know, you get this, assign this project. You don't particularly get on well with that person. But you think to yourself, you know what, I think I should face them on this issue. And so what you do is you bring up, hey, listen, I need to chat to you about something, but here are the guidelines. Okay, we can't fight each other, so... Last week there were some raised voices. We just can't do that. It's not going to help. We won't get the project done. And at that point, a lot of people do come round. Some people don't, but mm-hmm. a lot of people can and do come round. So, yeah, it's it's possible. I- incidentally, there are a significant proportion of people, even though they're fewer in number, but there's a significant proportion of people They say, oh, should I chat to my dad about this? And I say, hold on, you said your dad was obnoxious. And they say, well, yeah, he used to be. Yeah, and so yeah. and I say, well, what's he like now? And they say, well, I think he's changed ever since he became a granddad. Yeah, he's really changed, which often happens. That often doesn't happens. Yeah. yeah. And I say, well, what's he like to talk with now? And they say, well, I think he's just more patient. I go, mm, okay, well, absolutely, give it a go. And they can be really restorative conversations. Yeah. Point. Yeah, and and I've heard of quite a few like that, which mm. is, which is lovely. Yeah. That's very, it's very good. Um. Yeah, if there was one last thing you'd want to leave with our listeners, what would that be? There's great hope. There's so much hope. Um, relationships do hurt, but relationships do heal. And that happens every day. Every day that happens. Uh, I don't, like I said before, I want to create a realistic sort of prognosis. If the um, injury that we carry from disconnectedness, uh, harmful events that have intruded into our lives or the neglect like the absence of positive things if that goes way 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 back to when we're very little then the journey is long it's not brief and it can be difficult as well so it's not as if uh, it's not as if it's as, it's a clear solution the one that I'm offering which is connectedness but it's not um, it's not without its challenges um, but Definitely the thing that I'd like to end with is that there is a lot of hope. Mm. If we surround ourselves, we connect with ourselves, we connect with others and we connect with God and that's a really good framework to um, set ourselves up for the future. There's one study that I quote in the book where uh, they document, this is done by um, academics at University of Queensland here but it was done on uh, New Zealand census information and they uh, they have this um, rating on connectedness um, one year and then several years later they do the next you know mental health assessment and they, you can clearly see that if you're connected in the previous assessment then you're more likely to have better mental health in the next assessment hmm. so there is great hope there yeah. of course is hope Awesome. Thank you. I've really appreciated this. It's been good. Lovely to be with you. It's been an honour. 
it's been really cool. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary. 